I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to gain a new perspective on scripture by looking at it in new ways. A little over eight months ago, we began the book of Exodus, and today we finish this book. Now, I made an assertion back at the beginning of Exodus that has not had a lot of coverage in scholarly circles, but that I hope has been demonstrated well enough throughout the course of our exploration of this book as to have some merit in your eyes. That assertion is that I believe that the name of the book Exodus to be a bit of a misnomer. I think it misleads the reader's expectations of what to expect from the book. The title of Exodus serves to describe only half of the contents of the second book of Moses. Once the reader is past chapter 20, the book ceases to be about the exodus or leaving of Egypt and takes on the focus of coming close to God, drawing near and moving into a mutual relationship. Because the English name of this book falls short of describing the contents of the book, I have proposed that the Hebrew name of the book is a better option for describing the content of the book. Now, who remembers the Hebrew name of this book? That's right, it's Shemot, a Hebrew word that means simply names. Now, the Hebrew names of the books were not chosen to describe the contents of any particular book. The Hebrew names of the book of the Bible were usually chosen because of the words that begin each book. Genesis is called Bereshit in the Hebrew, and if you read Hebrew, this is the very first word of the Bible, Bereshit, which means in the beginning. In the same way, the book of Exodus begins with the word Ve'ele Shmot B'nei Yisrael. This is translated as, these are the names of the sons of Israel. The first word of any significance in the book is the word names. And the Torah specifically continues in this way. Leviticus is called Vayikra because it begins with, Vayikra el Moshe vedeber Hashem. And he called Moses and said Hashem. Vayikra meaning, and he called. Numbers is Bemidbar in the Hebrew, a word that means in the wilderness. And this book begins with Yadaber Hashem El Moshe Bemidbar Sinai, or And spoke Hashem in the wilderness of Sinai. Deuteronomy being Devarim in the Hebrew. Devarim meaning simply the words or the things. And Deuteronomy opens with Alei Hadavarim Asher Deber Moshe. And these are the words spoken by Moshe. And so, for most of the books of the Hebrew Scriptures, this is how the Hebrew names of the book was chosen. It was simply picked from the first major unique word that occurs in the book. And so, the traditional outlook is that no more consideration needs to be paid to this name or what it might say about the book. I disagree, however. I believe the Hebrew name of the book tells us more about 
the book than we should expect from simply picking the first major unique word in a sentence. If we approach the book of Exodus with the idea that the book is about names, then that is what we should expect to find throughout the entirety of the book, right? Well, it doesn't take long to see this name come to life in a very real way, because it's in chapter 3 that we find Moses and God meeting together, and this was the question that Moses had for God. What is your name? What should I tell them, these people who you would have me rescue? What should I tell them your name is? And into this, the immediate response is, I will be what I will be, usually translated as, I am that I am. Uh, simply expressed, I believe God is saying, pay attention and you will see my name on display. And then, as an added bonus of sorts, God does give a moniker, a name that they can call him by. Something that is a unique identifier that means only him. yod Hey vav Hey. Again, I'm not going to get into a conversation about how this is pronounced. That is not my forte. But that is the four-letter identifier of God. But as we proceed through the book, we find that the first revelation is the most profound. God will be who he is, and he will act according to his name. And the remainder of the book is just that. It is a revelation of the name of God to mankind. And not just the identifier that allows us to distinguish the God of the Bible from others in our speech, but rather the name of God in every way that it matters. Because as we discovered, the word Shemot means more in Hebrew than just a simple moniker, just as the word name in English means more than a simple identifier. This word has a host of meanings that can all be discovered in this book in relation to God. The word name can mean one's reputation, and this is how God introduces himself to Moses in chapter 3. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is my reputation that you have heard of. All these stories that you know of these men and their interactions with their God, well, Hashem is revealing himself to be that God to Moses. And very soon in the course of the book, to be that God to the people. The word name can also mean one's fame. And in God's interactions with Egypt, we see him building just that. An event that's so earth-shattering in the course of human history that it becomes one of the primary events that is pointed to throughout the rest of the Bible as the famous event that recalls God's power, his love, authority, and justice. Speaking of which, the word name can also mean one's authority or power. And through the events of the Exodus, we see Hashem exercising his authority over all of creation and over the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh, in order to bring about the redemption and the freedom of his people. And alongside this authority on display is a magnificent display of Hashem's power, these two ideas going hand in hand with each other in this book and throughout the rest of the scriptures. The word name can also encompass the honor of an individual. In Exodus 19, at the base of the mountain, we see Hashem's honor on display as everyone must wash and be clean for three days before coming near him. A shofar blows at his approach. No one is able to approach his space on the mountain. And this theme of the honor of God is on display throughout the book, especially in connection to the events at Sinai. Later on in the book, we see Moses appear to Hashem's honor in the incident with the golden calf. The argument that he makes to God on behalf of the people is one that's based solely on Hashem's honor. If you do this, then what will the nation say is the foundation of Moses' defense of the people. And the word can mean one's character. 
And we see God's character on display from one end of the book of Exodus to the other, but we get a very clear declaration of God's character in chapter 34 as Hashem passes before Moses and declares once again his name. Exodus 34, 5-7 And Hashem came down in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name Hashem. And Hashem passed before him and proclaimed, Hashem, Hashem, a God compassionate and showing favor, patient and great in loving kindness and truth, watching over loving kindness for thousands, forgiving crookedness and transgression and sin, but by no means leaving unpunished, visiting the crookedness of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is what Hashem declared for Moses when he declared his name the second time before Moses on Mount Sinai. No longer the reputation of the past, but the character that drives into the future. And it is this character that we as image bearers of God that we should take on and incorporate into our own character. And for the latter part of the book, we see Hashem's character and reputation as God of covenant a God of relationship, a God who wishes to have a relationship with humans. And in the midst of this building, we see much of what Hashem has in store for those who are His. Now, what I've just gone through is only a simple overview of the depths of the name Shmot and the ideas surrounding it as it dives into the book that we call Exodus. And this is the primary idea that we have been exploring for the last eight months on this podcast. If you didn't listen to everything, go back and begin Exodus from the beginning. So today we come to the end of this book, this book of names that is the greatest single revelation of the name, character, qualities, and reputation of Hashem, the God of creation, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we come to these final chapters, we discover something that I find really cool. Once again, the text gets repetitive. We should just expect this by now when it comes to the end of the book of Exodus. But here at the end, we read of the priest's garments one more time before reading of the tabernacle and its contents three times through in these final chapters. Because of the repetition here, there's not a whole lot new that's going on in these chapters. But there are a few things that we should notice going on, and we're given an opportunity to explore and discuss a common misconception that comes up elsewhere that these chapters do touch on. So let's read these chapters and then discuss the finale of the book of names. Exodus 39 and 40 And of the blue and purple and scarlet material they made woven garments to do service in the set-apart place. And they made the set-apart garments which were for Aharon, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he made the shoulder garments of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and of fine woven linen. And they beat out sheets of gold and cut it into threads, to work it in with the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen, the work of a skilled workman. They made shoulder pieces for it to join it. It was joined at its two edges. And the embroidered band of the shoulder garment that was on it was of the same work of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And they made the shoham stones, set in plated work of gold, engraved as signets are engraved, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he put them on the shoulders of the shoulder garments, stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he made the breastplate, a work of a skilled workman, like the work of the shoulder garment, of gold, of blue, and purple and scarlet material, and of fine woven linen. It was square. They made the breastplate double its length of span, 
its width a span doubled. And they filled it with four rows of stones. A row of ruby, a topaz, an emerald was the first row. And the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, a shoham, and a jasper, set in plated work of gold in their settings. And the stones were according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, engraved like a signet, each one with his own name according to the twelve tribes. And they made braided chains of corded work for the breastplate at the ends of clean gold. And they made two settings of gold and two gold rings, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And they put the two cords of the gold and the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. And the two ends of the two cords they fastened in the two settings, and put them on the shoulder pieces of the shoulder garment in the front. And they made two rings of gold, and put them on the two ends of the breastplate, and on the edge of it, which was on the inward side of the shoulder garment. And they made two gold rings, and put them on the two shoulder pieces, underneath the shoulder garment, on the front of it, close to its seam, above the embroidered band in the shoulder garment. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the shoulder garment, with a blue cord, so that it would be above the embroidered band of the shoulder garment, and that the breastplate would not come loose from the shoulder garment, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he made the robe of the shoulder garment of woven work, all of blue. And the opening of the robe was in the middle, like the opening in a scaled armor, with a woven binding all around the opening, so that it would not tear. And they made on the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material twined, and they made bells of clean gold and put bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe for the service as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And they made the long shirt of fine linen, the work of a weaver for Aaron and his sons, and a turban of fine linen, and the turban ornaments of fine linen, and short trousers of fine woven linen, and a girdle of fine woven linen with blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of an embroider, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And they made the plate of the set-apart sign of dedication of clean gold, and wrote on it an inscription like the engravings of a signet, set-apartness to Hashem. And they put on it a blue cord to fasten it above the turban, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And all the work of the dwelling place of the tent of appointment was completed, and the children of Israel did according to all that Hashem had commanded Moshe, so they did. And they brought the dwelling place to Moshe, the tent and all its furnishings, its hooks, its boards, its bars, and its columns, and its sockets. And the covering of ram skin dyed red, and the covering of fine leather, and the veil of the covering. The ark of the witness with its poles, and the lid of atonement, and the table, and all its utensils, and the showbread. The clean lampstand with its lamps, the lamps to be put in order, and all the utensils, and the oil for the light and the altar of gold, and the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, and the covering for the tent door, the bronze altar and its bronze grating, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the screens of the courtyard, its columns and its sockets, the covering for the courtyard gate, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the dwelling place, for the tent of appointment, the woven garments to do service in the set-apart place, the set-apart garments for Aaron, the priest, and his son's garments to serve as priests, According to all that Hashem had commanded Moshe, so the children of Israel did all the work. And Moshe looked over all the work and saw they did it as Hashem had commanded. So they had done, and Moshe blessed them. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, On the first day of the first new moon, you are to raise up the dwelling place of the tent of appointment, and shall put in it the ark of the witness, and screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it, and bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. 
and you shall set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the witness, and put up the covering of the door to the dwelling place. And you shall set the altar of ascending offering before the door of the dwelling place of the tent of appointment, and shall set the basin between the tent of appointment and the altar, and you shall put water therein. And you shall set up the courtyard all around, and shall place the covering of the courtyard gate, and shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the dwelling place and all that is in it, and shall set it and all its utensils apart, and it shall be set apart. And you shall anoint the altar of the ascending offering, and all its utensils, and set the altar apart, and the altar shall be most set apart. And you shall anoint the basin, and its stand, and set it apart. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tent of appointment, and wash them with water. And you shall put the set-apart garments on Aaron, and anoint him, and set him apart to serve as priest to me. And you shall bring his sons, and put long shirts on them, and shall anoint them as you anointed their father, and they shall serve as priests to me. And their anointing shall be for them an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. And Moshe did according to all that Hashem had commanded him, so he did. And it came to be in the first new moon of the second year, on the first day of the new moon, that the dwelling place was raised up. And Moshe raised up the dwelling place, and placed its sockets, and set up its boards, and put in its bars, and raised up its columns, and spread the tent over the dwelling place, and put the covering of the tent on top of it, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he took the witness, and put it into the ark, and he put the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the lid of atonement on top of the ark, and brought the ark into the dwelling place, and placed the veil of the covering to screen off the ark of the witness, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he put the table in the tent of appointment on the north side of the dwelling place, outside the veil, and set the bread in order upon it before Hashem, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he put the lampstand in the tent of appointment opposite the table on the south side of the dwelling place, and lit the lamps before Hashem, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he put the gold altar in the tent of appointment in front of the veil, and burned sweet incense on it, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he set up the covering to the door of the dwelling place, and he put the altar of ascending offering before the door of the dwelling place, of the tent of appointment, and offered upon it the ascending offering and the grain offering, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he put the basin between the tent of appointment and the altar, and put water therein for washing. And Moshe and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet with water from it. And they went into the tent of appointment, and as they came near the altar, they would wash as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he raised up the courtyard all around the dwelling place and the altar, and placed the covering on the courtyard gate, and Moshe completed the work. And the cloud covered the tent of appointment, and the honor of Hashem filled the dwelling place. And Moshe was not able to come into the tent of appointment, because the cloud dwelt on it, and the honor of Hashem filled the dwelling place. And when the cloud was taken up from above the dwelling place, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Hashem was on the dwelling place by day, and fire was on it by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel in all their journeys. So as this Parsha opens, we're treated once again to a listing of the high priest's regalia of office. The holy garments that were prescribed by God to be worn by the high priest while he served in the tabernacle. Just as with the tabernacle instructions from last week, we went through these items before, back in chapter 28. As we go through the high priest's garments, there's not a whole lot that's different in his telling than was spoken of earlier. The same items are listed without quite as much detail. And once again, we see that in this account, we're treated to the fact that the people were collaborating together to create these garments. Whereas in the previous portion on this, in chapter 28, we read only the instructions of what to do to create the garments. 
Now there's something in these instructions that was present in the previous set of instructions that I did not highlight the last time. It is an idea that's also present in Exodus 30 and that we find traced throughout the Torah in all of the upcoming books. Although when we encounter it in the book of Numbers, this topic is not spoken of explicitly. To the point that I really won't be bringing up the Numbers part of this discussion today, but I'll mention it when we get there in the course of the book of Numbers. In chapter 30 of Exodus, we read of the anointing oil and the incense that were to be created. And as we went through them, we recognized that these items were holy mixtures that were not to be replicated at any other time or for any other purpose. Well, if we pay attention, we will find that this prohibition of mixing items is not limited just to the ingredients of the oil and the incense. There are other items or materials that are not to be mixed together. There is a prohibition that is found later in the Torah that is a prohibition for the mixing of two specific kinds of cloth into the same garment. Deuteronomy 22.11 Do not put on a garment of different kinds of wool and linen together. Now this verse in the Hebrew it has only six words in it, and it says this. Lo, uh, it's simply a negative, do not. Telbash, which is to dress or to put on garments. Sha'atnez. Now this is an interesting word that's usually translated as mixed, but that's not the whole matter. We're going to return to this word in just a moment. Tzemer, wool, ufistim, flax or linen, yachdav, which means united or in union. Now that word, shatnez, is an important word, because if it simply means mixed threads, then there's another place in scripture where this word is used that would seem to indicate that all cloth mixtures are off limits, not just linen and wool. And that's in Leviticus 19.19, where it says, Guard my laws. Do not let your livestock mate with another kind. Do not sow your field with mixed seed. Do not put a garment woven of two sorts of thread upon you. Now this verse contains the word Sha'anez as well in its latter half. It literally says, And a garment mingled Sha'anez no come upon you. It specifically uses the phrase mingled sha'atnez. So the word translated as mingled in this verse is the word kilayim. And this word means in its context a heterogeneous mixture that is created from mixing two things together. So if this word means two things mixed together, then does sha'atnez, the following word, also mean simply two things mixed together as many translators and concordances choose to translate it? I would say no, and so does several millennia of Hebrew texts that exist apart from the Bible, as well as most lexicons. According to nearly every Hebrew lexicon in existence, the word sha'atnez means specifically a mixture of wool and linen. It does not mean a cotton poly blend or any other blend of clothing materials. It means, has always meant, and will always mean wool and linen. If this word sha'atnez is present, it means only a wool and linen mixture. Now it's ignorant to make this command about any mixing of fabric, because the verse doesn't hold up to mean this linguistically. Now why do I bring this up in this chapter specifically? Because we discovered in chapter 28 and in this chapter that the high priest's garment were a mixture of wool and linen. Exodus 28, 5-6, And they shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen, and shall make the shoulder garment of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen, the work of a skilled workman.
or Exodus 39.2. And he made the shoulder garment of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine woven linen. The holy garments of the high priest were a mixture of wool and linen thread. And yet elsewhere we discover that wool and linen is off limits to others. And through this command to make the garments of mixed wool and linen, we can better understand the prohibition against this mixture of wool and linen. Now, for many Christians, this command has taken on an air of mystery and even derision. I mean, how stupid. The kingdom of God isn't about mixing threads, right? And this rule is one that's commonly pulled out to demonstrate just how foolish the Torah is to a modern society. And to our shame, it's the Christian church that often leads this charge putting down their own holy book as outdated and not worth following to a modern audience. But in reality, this is a stance based on ignorance of the original language and an opinion on something that hasn't been properly studied out. On the other side of the equation are those who are Torah observant who make this command to mean any fabric blends, and then they look down on any who would dare to wear blended fabrics, to the point of declaring that others are sinners if they wear blended thread clothing. Once again, we see two opposite ends of a scale that has divided man from the beginning. On one side, there are those who would discard all that has come before, even going so far as to discard the words of Paul, in favor of appealing to modern sensibilities. And the other, binding people with cords of strict obedience that were never intended by God or by the text. Regardless, when we understand that this prohibition is in relationship to only wool and linen, and we recognize that all of the priest's garments contain a wool-linen mixture, we can understand that this prohibition has to do with holy mixtures that are not to be replicated, just as with the oil and the incense that we read of in chapter 30. And as we see in this chapter, this allowance for wool and linen in the priest's garment was not limited to the high priest. In verse 27 through 29, we read something new of the regular priest's garment. Previously in chapter 28, we read of these same garments, but the only material that was recounted in that passage was linen. Exodus 28, 39-40 And you shall weave the long shirt of fine linen, and shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the girdle of woven work, and make the long shirt for Aaron's sons, and you shall make girdles for them, and you shall make turbans for them, for honor and comeliness. The girdle is of a woven work, but the only fabric mentioned is linen. And this is why it's so important to look for the differences when we see this repetition, because this time we read something more about the girdle that was to be woven and to be worn by all of the normal priests. Exodus 39, 27-29 And they made the long shirt of fine linen, the work of a weaver, for Aaron and his sons, and a turban of fine linen, and the turban ornaments of fine linen, and the short trousers of fine woven linen, and a girdle of fine woven linen, with blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of an embroiderer, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. The priests wore something of the same holy mixture as the ephod of the high priest. And when we get to the book of Numbers, we'll read of another item that was made of this mixture, but which is not specifically stated in the text. As I said earlier, I'm going to wait to broach that topic for when we get there. For now, we can use this inclusion of a wool linen mixture in the priest's garments to help us later to understand the prohibition against combining this mixture in our everyday clothing. Continuing on, as we reach the end of chapter 39, we read that the work on the tabernacle was completed. 
And as we finish up the chapter, we see the text go through all of the items in the tabernacle and list them off as the closing bookend to the construction portion of the book of Exodus. And frankly, that trend is not going to end in chapter 39, because as we get to chapter 40, we discover that each item of the tabernacle is to be listed not just once, but twice more over the course of this final chapter. And as we examine these last two occasions of the tabernacle items and how they're listed, I think we discover something interesting. Once again, we first read of the instructions that were given by Hashem to Moses. God goes through each piece of the tabernacle with the command to set up each item. And then in verse 10, the command comes to anoint each of the items in the tabernacle. Then in verse 12 through 15, we read of the ceremony of ordination that was recounted in chapter 29 and the garments being put on the priests from chapter 28. And then in verse 17 through 30, Moses fulfills the command by setting up everything and anointing the items as instructed. Now, if we track the order of these items in this last chapter, we see that this last chapter takes the form of the entirety of Exodus from chapters 25 through 39 in the listing of the items of the tabernacle. First comes the instructions for God's tent, chapters 25 through 27. And here, once again, we get the instructions up to verse 10 of setting up the tent. Then come the instructions for the clothing and the ordination of the priests, which is chapters 28 through 30 of Exodus. Here it's verses 12 through 15, where we read of that ordination as recounted. Moses does what God commands, and then the commands that have been given previously are carried out in chapters 35 through 39. Here in verses 17 through 30, we see the exact same thing. Moses carrying out the commands that were given just earlier. This chapter is, in some ways, an index of sorts for most of the last half of the book of Exodus. And if we examine the order in which the articles are recorded in chapter 40, we discover that this time they're in the same order as was recorded in chapters 36 and 37. First is the tent of the dwelling place. Then comes the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the menorah, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the bronze laver, and then the outer courtyard. This is the same order of construction as recounted in the last few chapters, and as it's told twice in this chapter, they're in that same order both times. And then at the end of the chapter, the tabernacle is set up. It is ready for service, but service can't yet begin. In verse 34 through 35, we see the cloud that is the glory of Hashem covers the tent and fills it. And the presence of Hashem is in the tent with such a concentration of his glory that it prevents Moses from entering into the tabernacle. The presence of God is so thick with the people that they cannot enter into the place of worship that God has given the people for the purpose of worship. And this teaches us something of great importance. Worshiping Hashem is not just a matter of having or going to the right place. Worshiping Hashem is also a matter of worshiping him in the right way. For God has a way that he desires to be worshipped. He has a way that he desires for men to come into contact with him. And as we end the book of Shemot or Exodus and we begin the book of Vayikra or Leviticus, we're going to discover something very quickly. The book of Leviticus is the way to enter the tent. It is for all intents and purposes the instructions of how to worship Hashem. Let's compare a few passages real quick, and I think that you will see what I'm talking about. So here at the end of Exodus, the glory of God is so thick in the tent that no one can enter. 
And when we turn the page to Leviticus 1, we discover the same thing, Leviticus 1.1. And Hashem called to Moshe and spoke to him from the tent of appointment, saying, At the very beginning of Leviticus, nothing has changed. Hashem is calling to Moses from the tabernacle. Moses is outside to receive these instructions. But then when we get to the book of Numbers, we read something new in Numbers 1.1. And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of appointment, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Somewhere between the end of Exodus and the beginning of Numbers, somewhere between the first day of the first month of the second year and the first day of the second month of the second year, Somewhere in that one-month time frame, something changed. Somewhere in the one book that is between these other two, something changed. By the book of Numbers, Moses is able to enter into the tabernacle. And what is it that occurs between the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers? Well, it's the book of Leviticus. And as I said, as we're going to discover very soon, Leviticus is the handbook for worshiping Hashem. This book, it describes several aspects of worship as it is to be practiced with Hashem. Simply being in relationship with God is not enough. I mean, think about it. Simply being married to your spouse is not enough to maintain relationship. We have to learn about the one that we love. We have to spend time with them. We have to get to know them, their likes, their dislikes, their particular ways of doing things. And for those of us who are married, you have discovered that the ways that your spouse expects things to be done is not the way that you always did them before. Both spouses have to change and conform to each other in order for the relationship to continue peacefully. We must sometimes give up on our way in order to do things the way of the one we love. Well, when we enter into a relationship with an unchanging God, guess who has to change? Well, the only ones capable of change, and frankly, the ones in need of change. And that means you and me. And Leviticus is going to tell us just what God wants us to be aware of and how we should approach him when we enter into our practice of relationship with him, when we enter into our intimate time with him, when we learn of him and what he expects of the one who bears his name. For he has a way that he desires to draw close. And that's what we're going to be learning about in the upcoming book. But we're not there yet. We're still in Exodus. And Exodus is not about how Hashem wishes to be worshipped. Exodus is about revealing to us who Hashem is. And the culmination of knowing Hashem is drawing near to him in covenant. And for the entire last half of the book of Exodus, that's what we've read. God rescued his people from an oppressive enemy. He comes into Egypt and obliterates their forces. He then leads them away and brings them close to himself. He cares for them in a way that is supposed to foster trust in him. He feeds them. He gives them water and meat when they ask for it. He manifests himself to all of them in the form of cloud and fire in the events at Mount Sinai. He creates, or rather, he has them create, a place where he could dwell with them in their midst a home in the community that they could gather around and enter into and spend intimate time with him. And as we've seen throughout this book, Exodus is the beginning of that experience for the first time since the fall in the garden, that experience of God and man together in relationship. The tabernacle is a microcosm of the new creation being erected in the midst of the people. 
It's a story of how the Garden of Eden is being planted once again with humans to work and to keep it, and with God in the midst of it, with this one place that's solely God's domain and none other is to partake or to participate. The, the tabernacle is the beginning of a new creation in the midst of the earth. There was a seed that was planted in Abraham, and now a crop has been grown and has been gathered in, and new creation has been realized in their midst to a limited degree, to a degree that plants the seeds for a bigger crop in the upcoming millennia. And in that upcoming millennia comes Yeshua, and with Yeshua we see the fullest expression of this foundational truth. One of the names that we give Yeshua is Emmanuel. This word is a phrase in the Hebrew, and it breaks down in this way. Im, with, anu, us, el, God. God with us. Isaiah 7.14 gives the name in this way. Therefore Hashem himself gives you a sign. Look, the Alma conceives and gives birth to a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Yeshua took the experience of God with us, and he revealed the truth in a new and very real way for humanity. No longer was the experience of God with us limited to a tent such as the tabernacle or a building such as the temple. For the first time ever, the word of God put on flesh and walked among us. He brought the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. He foretold of the destruction of the temple, and he built for himself a temple that was not made with human hands, but a temple that's made up of stones of flesh, a temple that is the people of God. And then God sent his Holy Spirit, his glory, to come and to dwell with us, to indwell this tent that we are part of, to manifest his glory, his power, his reputation, his authority, and his character to the world. He has made us into the place where the service of God occurs. And we, working together, we form the place where God can dwell with us even today. Not just in our midst, but in our very bodies. This process that the book of Exodus reveals for us is the process of salvation. We were slaves to sin and death. We've been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. We've been given the food of his word to sustain us and brought close to him in covenant. And now he fully dwells with us in this physical plane. All for the purpose of founding new creation in the midst of this corrupt creation that we're responsible for corrupting in the first place. And all of this is part of God's plan to clean up our mess. And in a nutshell, this is the book of Exodus. It is the gospel. It is the plan of redemption. It is the creation of the church. It's a microcosm and a seed of the greater things to come. And in my opinion, even the advent of Yeshua was just another round of seed for something much greater yet to come. But if there's one thing that the book of Shemot teaches us, it is the nature of our God. And it is the name of our God. And when we see Hashem in this way, we get to know him better. We see clearly who he is. And only then can we truly live out the third command. Exodus 20 verse 7, you shall not bring the name of Hashem your God to naught, for Hashem does not leave the one unpunished who brings his name to naught. 
Now, most translations say you don't take the name of God in vain, and we understand that as speaking the name of God incorrectly. But in the Hebrew, it's do not carry the name of Hashem in emptiness or nothingness or falsehood. Do not take the name of God and then act in a way as to make it worth nothing. And that means being very purposeful in action and very purposeful in word and very purposeful in thought. For if we don't even know the name of our God as it is expressed and intended to be lived out, then when we live our lives with his name, we will invariably present a false version of his name to the world. And this is why Exodus is so vitally important in my opinion, because it teaches us the name of our God in a way that is completely inescapable. And without knowing his name, we cannot act in his name. For as we dereshchai, as we seek life, knowing the name of God is extremely important. Not how it's pronounced, how his name is lived. For only by knowing his name can we act in his name. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Dereshchai, as we Seek Life. Shalom.